Hi, this is the Yang. I'm Reg Clay and Norby Chief. We're here to talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. And we have a wonderful guest, the fantastic director, uh, Susan Evans, the uh, artistic director of the Town Hall Theater. How are you, Susan? I am doing just fine. Thank you, Reg. <laughs> I tell you, we go back a long, long ways. Well, actually, I think Norman also knows you uh, for a long about the same time. At the same yeah. time. Yep. Uh, to, let me see. I want to say 2002, three. I don't know the year. I counted up the productions. I've directed you six <laughs> times. <laughs> six times with Reg. Aha. Well, hey, I must be doing something good because <laughs> just all calling. Just so. can't find anybody else, Reg. I don't <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of which, uh, Town Hall will be doing uh, Civil War Christmas uh, this fall. Oh, that's right. You're in that. Yeah, that's right. Yay. Yeah, Paula, uh, Paula Bogle, and uh, we got Dawn Monique Williams coming down from Ashland. So we are really, really excited that she's kind of slumming with us at Town mm-hmm. Hall right now. That's cool. Yeah, we were talking, you and I, about... Um, Actors, especially African American uh, actors, they, they reached a level, and they just leave the Bay Area and just go off to do bigger and better things. So oh, period! I just talked to somebody who's also going to do that. The job I'm doing this, doing right now at the Jean O'Neill um, Tow House. Oh yeah. I'm teaching a summer intensive, and the guy who was supposed to do it is about to move to LA. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay, another one. And I want to give him advice. <laughs> I, I'm like, I, I, you know, I don't want to overstep the bounds, but um, I want to just say I've seen this. I've seen this my whole career. I've seen people do it, and I've seen people hit that. What they do is they hit a certain level. And I think the example I gave last time was there's some group. I think they might have actually called themselves Reorient or something like that. There was some play on words. Mm-hmm. It was three Asian guys. They did uh, Texas, I believe was the name of the show. It was a beautiful little three-hander. They did fabulously. They got a lot of attention for it. And within months, two of them were gone to L.A., and the other guy left within another four or five months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's tough keeping talent. And you and I, Susan, we were talking about how um, it's tough maintaining yourself in, in the Bay Area as far as theater is concerned, whether you're an actor, whether you're a company. I mean, uh, if, if you've made it big, then... Zoom, you're going to go off to the big leagues, whatever that is. And if you haven't made it big, it's it's tough just the money has, has just uh, crippled a lot of companies. Yeah. I know lots of directors who are trying to cobble it together, and some of them are doing, you know, 10, 20. You can't, you can't do 20 shows a year, you know. Right. And that's yet what you would have to do to make a living here. Um, I know one fabulous scenic designer, and she was working up here. And she, yeah, she literally did 20 or 25 shows a year up here just to put it. And she went down down to L.A. She's working for Disney now. And, um, yeah. yeah. There's just there's just no comparison. I mean, she misses theater, but you can't live up here. Well, and that, but I don't know that there's any place you can. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, the story I've told before is um, I was working as a um, – resident artist for Brooklyn Web, and so took a group of kids to see Scrooge, not Scrooge, um, Oliver Twist, you know, the book, not the musical, Um, they had done an adaptation, and the cast was a touring cast, and so one of the kids asked afterwards in the talk back about having a job, and the guy who plays Fagan said, show of hands everybody on stage, who has another job, or a partner, or a spouse, or somebody who's actually making, cover, making sure that men, you Make ends meet. Every hand went up. Like even the New York actors are dealing with that. And this is a guy who actually has a recording role in Law and Order. Yeah, no, I know. It's 
it is it is tough in this area. In, I think, in, though, in particular, in terms of just paying the rent. Well, the, yeah, the expenses and so on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of uh, interesting things happening this week. You know, we have uh, OJ being set free, uh, which <laughs> had me thinking about. 1994, and this is a before, you know, I took a hiatus from theater when I came out from college, and I remember being 25 years old when the whole car chase and all that happened and the conviction or whatever. It's, it's, I'm, I'm a bit fascinated why we're still obsessed with um, Mr. Simpson. I mean, you know, I hope that he is a good boy and just behaves. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's unreconciled. This whole murder thing is unreconciled. Mm-hmm. Until we get some closure on that, we're going to keep looking at him. Yeah. Well, I think it's also a byproduct of just the race questions that we still have as Americans. Well, and that is what we are. Right, yeah. Well, because that's the reaction, and I've seen that this week, people talking about how black people seem to have this real mixed feeling about O.J. because on the one hand, like even with the murder trial, it wasn't that people thought he was innocent necessarily. They just thought, wow, the justice system is actually tilting in our favor for once. Right, that was the reaction. And I also thought it was very regional. I mean, I, we you know I talked about Trayvon Martin and a lot of the more recent, you know, killings of black men by the police and, and other little things. And it becomes a national thing. It really wasn't a national thing. With I'm thinking about um, Bernard. Bernard um, um, who's the guy who? Um, I, I just want to get along. Um, Rodney King. Oh, Rodney, Rodney King. King, which happened a year before O.J. Simpson. Uh-huh. And, but that was regional. I mean, L.A. exploded, but not America. Right. And I, even when I went to school, you said Hawkins and a couple of other things, the Central Park Five. Mm-hmm. That was regional as well. That was only New York. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the country didn't explode. Well, in Atlanta, you had the, the child murders. Oh, right. When I was a kid, I, I, I remember that. I remember saying, you know, in the Washington Post. But still, that was a, a very regional thing. But now it's not regional because I guess... Everyone has Twitter, Facebook, and, you know, we have push notifications. Well, so there's a level of activism, I think, that's different now than what was going on then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, Susan, we, we have you on, you know, uh, Craig, Sousa, you know, gushes about you, and um, Scott Munson, he even had a uh, Facebook uh, <laughs> question, like, how do you, like, deal with these, you know, crazy playwrights? <laughs> talking about no, that's right, I saw that. But, um, no, I mean, every actor that has ever, um, that I've talked to that has worked with you has had great praises about you as a director. Um, that's nice. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's true. How did you begin? Um, we've talked about our origins as getting into theater, but how did the theater bug bite you? I uh, probably started in theater. Certainly, it was all acting, 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 acting. Uh, high school and ended up in my high school. There was a drama club, but no real classes. And I just oh. immediately kind of um, took it over, mm-hmm. took over the club, and started. Oh wow! Yeah, to, uh, started directing. Even then, because I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And uh, even even way back then, I remember I I did for a competition, you know, all the high schools do these, um, when I play competitions, they mm-hmm. get, get judged. And this one, I found the script. I don't know how I managed to do this. It was one of the episodes of The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Oh. I, I got a copy of the script for Anne Boleyn, and we did it. <laughs> so it was like, nobody else was doing that one. They were doing <laughs> Not Enough Lope by Elaine May or whatever. Um, and we won or won something, and they were so surprised that it was a student directed, because usually there was no student directing. So, so I started then, and um, then right out of that, I apprenticed with a summer stock company, 
uh, at Emory, Emory University. Now, again, Emory at that time had no formal classes in theater. They had a very vibrant theater, but it was uh, old school. You know, theater is not academics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's set somewhere apart. So I did a huge amount of theater and a huge amount of um, uh, rep and Somerset because we, we went through the old school. We did a during the summer, one play a week. Mm-hmm. So you were rehearsing wow. one play while you were performing right. another play. And what was unusual, too, was the guy who ran the theater program at Emory at that time was the vice president of SAG mm-hmm. in, wow. the, in the southeast. Mm-hmm. So he knew all these actors in Atlanta and around right. who weren't doing anything in the summer. So we get to work uh, alongside all these professionals. Um, so it's great training. and um, But still no formal, no formal training. Mm-hmm. So uh, after that, and it was, I went to Emory because my father was a professor. We were, mm-hmm. we're all faculty brats. You get free tuition, you really, you go where you get right. free tuition. Right. Um, but I still wanted something more uh, formalized, so then I auditioned for a lot of acting schools, and I went to England because I'm half English, so I thought I was going to go to an English acting school, and I auditioned there, and I got accepted at the place called Drama Studio London. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, we're opening a branch in Berkeley, California. And, uh, and of course, they were trying to push me into that one because they wanted to make that branch go. And my sister was at Stanford, so long story short, I ended up in Berkeley instead of in England. Uh, that, that school does not exist anymore, but its most famous graduate is Forrest Whitaker. Forrest was... Oh, wow. I didn't know he was local. Mm-hmm. Forrest was a half a year behind us, and he was already... I don't even know if he finished the program because he was already getting cast. Um... And, uh, but yeah, they've had a couple famous graduates. They, they had closed the Berkeley branch, but the London branch is going, still going strong, actually doing very well. I think Emily Watson was also a drama studio graduate. But that was a very intense one year, and I kept going with acting uh, for years after that and did some shows around. But you know how it is, you get out of acting school, it's like, oh, the world. Right, right. Uh, exactly. Uh, the one thing and about the step at the back of the line. Yeah, and the one thing about the drama studio was, that was great, though, was all these um, local directors and actors were also teaching there, so people like Richard E.T. White, who is now mm-hmm. big time, he taught us, uh, Julian Lopez Marias, he was one of our teachers. Wow. Um, yeah, we had, some, we had some very good people. Uh, but yeah, once I got out, it's like, oh, the real world. Um, so I kept up for a while, then I had a nervous breakdown. Things came to a crashing halt. Uh, I actually, I went, and then I went back and was taking a master class with Mr. Ticconi. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very small. It was like five or six actors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he he's, says what he feels. <laughs> and a lot of the women in the class couldn't take it. Mm-hmm. You know, they got very sensitive about it. I don't really care. But we were expected also to critique uh, our fellow actors. And at one point after the class, he said, you know, Susan, I don't know about your acting. <laughs> But uh, I think with your directing, maybe you have something there. Hmm. So that kind of set me back to a trajectory. Now, I had, I had directed in college. I had um, run the um, children's theater program there. So I directed a lot in college, children's theater, and, and just then put that aside. So I went back to directing when I, when I eventually hooked up with EastEnders Repertory Company. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be doing more acting. I guess. I don't know what I thought then. I I did one show with EastEnders. And after I did that show, I never wanted to act again. Because you were buried. Because it was Happy Days. Oh. And those of you who know Happy Days. By Pinter? 
No, no, it's Mr. Beckett. Samuel, Samuel Beckett. Beckett, okay. But so she's buried up to, to her waist in sand for the first act in her neck. Right. In the second. And she talks for 65 pages. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought, I don't really need to do anything ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I mean, that's actually true. I mean, right. I have what, that what point. What did you do after that? <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, I, I don't know, maybe you can speak to this, Mormon, but up until that point, there was always a, a sense of I'm on stage. Mm-hmm. That was the first and only show, and maybe that's why I stopped, that I wasn't on stage. I was just living my life, which is what the character is doing. Mm-hmm. She's waking up in the morning, and she's doing these repetitive things for sure. you know, 60 pages. I'm like, the, that line of I am performing disappeared. Ah. And so, I don't know. So I think like, I'm always struggling back towards that um, in teaching. I'm always telling students, because it's... it's I started, I kind of snuck into teaching by doing shows, you know, being paid workshops and things like that, and then these classroom things. Um, so it never felt like theater, the way I'd been trained to do theater, or the way I experienced doing theater. And I kept thinking, what can I bring that is simple that I can bring to these people that they can understand? Well, real life. <laughs> Just doing things real. Don't fake drinking something. Let's put something in the glass. And then, yeah, you want to get sophisticated and you get into sense memory work and all that stuff. Right. But, but really start with the, what can you do that you normally do? Mm-hmm. And I find that to be the most satisfying thing in acting because then there are those little choices that you were making that are acting. There is you conforming to the playwright's intention, the director's you know, perspective. Um, and then that whole mix of things gets rooted in just how can you keep it normal? I mean, isn't that the nirvana, the nirvana, I guess, of an actor where you're so bonded with the script and the character that it almost becomes living? I mean, that, that the line is blurred out. Is that what you're talking about? I guess what I'm talking about, I've only done like maybe one video, one little film. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, I think of percentages of how much percentage of you is the character and in the piece and how much of you is don't step over this line, look here, mm-hmm. walk here, don't fall off the edge of the stage. Right. And in video and film, as I say, the very little I've done, the percentages were never more than 40% character because there's too many right. other things to worry yeah. about. Right. With stage, at these most sublime moments, you can edge into that 70 or 80% thing mm-hmm. where almost all of you is a character, but not all. I, I never think it should be. Right. I mean, you always need to be aware of, because you are communicating, but you always, always need to retain yourself. But, um, yeah, so there's that, that, that line that shifts, and you do have those, those sublime moments that I call them where you really are close, but you have to have that percentage of you that's standing up there, too. Right. I've always had uh, teachers, I'm going back to when I uh, learned at NYU, where they would say, don't just walk on the stage, come from an area, or, you know, like um, mm-hmm. you have to have a life inside of you right. that you bring onto the stage. But I hear what you're saying. You're basically saying, listen, this is the theater, and you have to hit these marks, and the lights are hitting you right. in a particular area, so you can't really be so indulged that you lose yourself. Right. And, I mean, this is my training. Again, I was trained in an English, English acting school. Mm-hmm. We were tra- trained with technique. Right. We were not... We were trained that we are not to, um, oh, I was going to say a rather rude word, but I won't say, it, not no, be do- no, indulgent. Don't be self-indulgent. Right. You are not performing for yourself. You are performing for someone. And so um, you are always performing for somebody. And that was a real bottom line with the t- with technique. And it is with me. I mean, I think you talked when Craig Susan was on about the fact that I do tend to, 
come at things from a very technical, from an outside-in perspective as a director. Yeah, right, I was comparing you with other directors. Yeah. Because, yeah. And I don't really care what the actor's inner life is. That's not my job, right. as far as I'm concerned. And I mean, yeah, okay, I'll talk about it if you want to talk about it. But really, uh, I'm trying to create a picture That's mm-hmm. and to be sort of old school about Indulgent it. is the right word for that. Yeah, uh, we don't need, if you need to have that conversation, right. maybe I can make time for yeah. it. But as long as you're on stage, doing what I need to say was, was masturbatory. <laughs> or close to that. Perhaps it was. Uh, I think that's pretty... It's, it's okay. I mean, you can write letters to me if you want to say it. But yes, there are some actors, and we talked about this. I told you about the, 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 the class mate of mine who was so into it, and she cried and cried, and she was like, yes, I'm feeling it. And it had nothing to do. I mean, the play had always gone straight off the back. You know, I don't ask both of you as an actor. Have you ever had this? Because I'm going back to my acting days. Those those things that you, you've had this performance, and oh, you felt it so much. And then you went out and you found it. It really didn't communicate beyond the footlights. And then the reverse. You've had a, a, a night that you thought, oh, man, that wasn't good. But it was. You did communicate it. So you don't need to feel it to communicate it. I, I think I got lucky with Moments where I didn't know what was going on, I felt very uncomfortable, and then you go out and you talk to But I lived in it. I went ahead and just lived with that, and it felt not inappropriate to the moment. So right. I was like, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing or how to nail this, but I'm just sort of taking this ride. And then you talk to the audience afterwards, and I love those experiences. Audiences tell you about stuff, and you're like... Okay, I, I, I'm not going to invalidate your experience, but wow, that wasn't in any of our heads when we made this moment. Right, exactly, and it always surprises me when someone says, wow, I like that moment. I'm like, really? Okay, I can't even remember what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But it's also a matter of trust. You have to trust what the director, how the director directs you and, and uh, where they guide you, even if you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And there have been plenty of times, like we talked about the bed bug, Craig, Susan, and I were, and it's one of my... It's, it's, it's a thing that I think about a lot because uh, it's, it was a very uh, different play, but we were sort of a machine, and it was, it was a different way of acting. It was a different way of approaching mm-hmm. uh, a play and approaching our characters. And I think for, for those who, um, who saw it and for those who, you know, they, they still were. Well, I think you could say more about it. this. What, what is it? What, what, what are you talking oh, my about? It's it was, yeah, it's Vladimir Mayakovsky and... Norman, I would call it one of my glorious failures. Mm, I wouldn't think so. Well, I mean, this is not to be critical of Reg's work. Reg was fine. Craig was fine. Everybody was fine. Um, it's a huge piece and very complicated. And um, and and it's it's that period of time where you're dealing with the biomechanics that's just coming into Russian theater. Mm. And what it was trying to say sociologically. Turn of the century, right? A little bit later than turn of the century, but what it's trying to talk about Russian society and Mm -hmm. using this man who basically um, somehow is preserved and then reappears in the future. And and the only thing that's come with him is a little tiny bed bug. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's really talking about all these very complicated sociological issues. And uh, but yes, the company and ensemble had to work as a mechanical unit. Right. We had to sort of be a machine. Like, let's say he was saying, oh, that's a, I don't know, a bus or that's a a refrigerator or something like Mm -hmm. that. And we, as actors, would form into these things. And as an actor, you just sort of have to just jump into it. It's almost like, I remember, like, when I was in living stage as a, uh, I think, as a, um, uh, I was a uh, 
volunteer. I, I was a kid, basically. Mm-hmm. But it, was, it was improvisation. Right. And, and we, it was just like, hey, you know, you're going to be a dog or you're mm-hmm. going to be a buffalo or something like that. Just jump into it. Mm-hmm. Some actors are like, okay, well, why am I doing this and how does this fit in? And Or they can't. Right. I mean, this is the thing. I've directed Reg six times and now to be serious about it, why do I keep casting Reg? Because think about, I was thinking about what I had used Reg in. Reg in. Okay, Bedbug, 1905, Mayakovsky, Far Away, Carol Churchill, mm-hmm. um, Skin of Our Teeth, Thornton Wilder, mm-hmm. 1947. I mean, you're very flexible. You're willing to jump into it. The last show we did together well is by Lisa Cron, and it's c- completely contemporary. And again, it's, um, it's you know, excuse me. <laughs> It's meta meta theater, and you just jumped into the meta theater, and that's the whole. And that's not easy for a lot of people to do. And mm-hmm. yeah. And here's a question. Thank you. It's, it's a great compliment. Um, how do you deal with? And this is a question that I had asked. Um, who was your um, the the guest that we had beforehand? Um, Robert Robert Estes. Exactly, Robert Estes. Because I had asked him, how do you deal with an actor if you give him a direction and they're not quite getting it? How do you deal? And I've asked this with a different, like I asked this with Craig Souza. We've had a bunch of directors and budding directors, and some of them have had a hard time talking about it. How do you get an actor to point the direction that you want them to go? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's a big question. It's, it's a, it is a very big question. To me, you, you have to... F- no actor has the same language. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to find what language each actor mm-hmm. speaks and understands. Right. Sometimes it matches yours. Mm-hmm. Great. You say it, they do it. Um, sometimes it needs a little interpretation or you need to right. give them a little bit of, um, uh, maybe a little bit of physical movement that will help mm-hmm. them. Or, or say, yeah, try, try a technique. Like give them a quirk. Give them a physical quirk. Or mm-hmm. tell them to find a physical quirk or something mm-hmm. that sends them off into one direction. Sometimes you have to, without giving them a line reading, give them a line reading. Right. And you have to do it because you have to, because it's the line reading is actually giving them sense mm-hmm. because they're not understanding the sense of the line. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you have to give it all up and listen to where they're at right. and then go from that. And you've got to build from that. And if, they're, if they speak a completely different language, then you've got to you've got to start listening to that and figuring out how to talk to them. Is there an internal clock that goes inside of you as a director? Because let's say, I don't know, maybe it's a month before showtime or maybe two weeks before opening, and you either say to yourself, listen, I've got to, how do I communicate with this person? Or you just say, the hell with it. i just got to let this person go. Mm-hmm. Does it depend on the role? I mean, it could be the lead role. Well, if it's a lead role, you got to do something about it. Right. I mean, if it's a, a minor role and it's a particular kind of production, sometimes you give it up. You, you make them as, as adequate as you can right. and communicate the story. But if it's a lead role, you've got to you have got to figure out a way to yeah. to to. Uh, is it common? Maybe it isn't common at all. Maybe you haven't run into. Well. You know what? I think, okay, I don't usually praise myself, but it's all the casting. I mean, the more I do, the more I do, the more I realize, and I hate hate to tell directors this, because you can basically, if you cast well, Mm -hmm. you can almost sit on your ass the entire rest of the time and still get away with it. And, I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, but it's true. If you cast... I don't think so, because casting means that you, that communication thing is going on. They fit within the world of the play. They fit within the needs of, you know... What the play is asking for, and your decision. 
They, and yeah, and then they have you have a communication. You can feel that um, I dire- I'm directed. I um, auditioned for Hamlet and I got in. Mm-hmm. I went to Polonius. I got called back, and he asked for an adjustment. He was apologetic. And I'm like, dude, I, I got no problem because I understand you were considering an actor who's going to play multiple roles. You don't want to waste your time with look at this and look at that and look at the other thing. Let's take this one piece that you've gotten familiar with and let me see what I can do with you. Let me test drive you, basically. And I'm like, go for it. I don't know how well I'll do, but go for it. And you know, it was exciting to know. I ain't been on that side of the table. I have a sense of what you might be doing. It doesn't matter whether I know or not. You're directing me. Mm-hmm. We need to have that communication relationship. You need to see how I respond to what you ask me to do. And if I fall somewhere where you go, okay, I can work with that. Right. Even if I don't hit exactly what you're looking for. Right. Even if you try to nudge me towards it, I really don't get there. And if you've made a choice. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as that. Is when you see an actor, you go, this actor is making a choice. They are they are not just being passive. They're not doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're thoughtful. I like to work with intelligent actors. I'm not I, was, I was going to mention that. Do you, when you look at a resume, when you're auditioning folks, do you take into effect, okay, what school did you go to? Yeah. And that'll tell me I what training you have. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. I do, and there's some schools. There's one that will that I will not name. It's a local school, and if I see that on the resume, it's a black mark for me mm-hmm. because it's a particular style that comes out of that school that I don't care for. I, I, I know some places like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it is, it is that language, finding the language of the actor, and sometimes it is – it is a struggle, but if you cast it well, and then if you cast it badly, or if you take that risk and you know it, you know when you're casting, right. it, it's hard to get. Yeah. It always is there. It's always there. And that was another question that I had asked <coughs> Robert Estes. Do you sometimes get it wrong? Like, let's oh, say yeah, you have of course someone, you someone gives a magnificent audition. It's like, wow, this person's fantastic. And all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're, whatever it is, it's not translating in the rehearsal area. Does yeah. that happen? Yeah, oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. Not as much as, I mean, I think the older you get, that you get better at casting. Better oh, and, better yeah. better. and you know you have that, I, I probably agree with me. Okay, you have the very good actor who you love to work with, can take direction, thoughtful, intelligent, kind, good person. And then you have the brilliant sometimes actor who occasionally just will wow you, but is difficult in mm-hmm. one way or more. And I will always pick the very good actor. Over the brilliant actor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it. And and I know a particular director in the area who seems to love that brilliant actor. And I'm like, dude, for everything that you get out of that, the amount of energy you have to put into it, and the amount of keeping them on track that you have to do, because they become indulgent. They become very under. They're going to tell you and the playwright what the play is about, (laughs) that the play is not really about this other thing. And unfortunately, one actor can sort of hijack your entire career. Oh, all the time. It's killer. Now, I'm going through the, so I'm in day, this was day eight of a 10-day intensive, eight to three, with this group of teens. And, ooh. So, uh, uh, five of them wrote pieces, and now we've been rehearsing those pieces. We'll perform them on Sunday at the Eugene O'Neill House. And... I knew in casting that what I look for are the solid people. Those are my utility people. 
who do I need to be really flexible? Who do I need to give me a solid moment that the other character is going to bounce off of? So that main character, like, to use Romeo and Juliet, because it's, you know, an obvious example for people. If you know Romeo and Juliet, I would go with pretty stupid people for Romeo and Juliet and take the really smart people and make them the friends and the friar and all the other... Because those are the people that make the story happen. I have, I have played Juliet, you know. <laughs> Juliet can be a lot of fun if you've got somebody who can actually play Juliet. She's, she's like number two in the amount of lines for women in a Shakespeare play. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't realize she, that. Yeah, she has more than... She's got a huge load. <laughs> anyway. Just but, so, but so... Um, so... Um, the other thing I started doing with casting through this team process, which I realize I now think about more when I'm dealing with other things, is so you're fighting for this role, and you're telling me you're flexible. So actor A is fighting for the role. Actor B is saying they'll be flexible. If I put actor B, where can I put actor B that is most useful for me? Okay, I can put actor B in someplace else. Actor A, you can have that role. Mm-hmm. And this is going to kind of become your show. But I'm also going to get somebody strong pushing the story along. So that's what I care about. Um, one of the stories has a silent character, almost silent. He has a couple of lines out of like five pages of very single-space text. Um, he's got like three lines or something. But the other two characters are talking about him and responding to him, and he's responding to them throughout the piece. He keeps entering and exiting, but... When he's in, he's, the show needs to be about him. And I picked a kid who I just didn't know what else to do with. He was too big to make a small kid. He had a too youthful energy to, like, make him a dad or something like that. He just, I didn't know what to do with him. But in uh, the exercises that we did early in the process, he was very directable, very directable. And I was like, okay. I can push him through this if I need to. Well, it turns out I don't need to. He's got a wonderful mind. And he started picking up ideas, and any time he gets off track, it's easy to ask him for the adjustment. And he will make these gorgeous adjustments and then extrapolate. So I don't have to keep making the repair. I can make it in one place, and he's fixing it. So I'm really hoping that people will find him to be the most. And I didn't think he would be. I've got, I've got five boys. Um, I've got two boys who have a nice look and a nice energy and presence. They can project. They're comfortable on stage. I'm thinking his performance is actually going to outshine theirs. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, this is sounds awesome. Who knew that would happen? I mean, as, as a director, I trust that process. I think he's like 17. Uh, no, uh, yeah, he's, he's under 18 because somebody asked today. They planned a cast party. And I've never been so old before. I'm like, wow, that sounds cool. I hear that, and I think to myself, that sounds so cool. And then the impulse to find out where it is and what's going on, I was like, wait a minute, nobody invited me. <laughs> I have to let it go. So somebody else asked if they could get a ride with him, and he said, I can give anybody who's over 18 a ride. <laughs> like, okay, so he's under 18. <laughs> I have a question for you, Susan. Um, we had Radhika Rao on, and she talked about an incident that happened in rehearsal. I think she was doing um, Macbeth. And she said that there was an intimacy scene, and as an actress, she felt a bit uncomfortable, and she wanted someone to check in because I guess she wanted to be the diligent actress and just pull through it and just do what the director told her to do. But she wanted someone to check in, and we talked about it on the last episode, but 
being both a woman and also a director, it's obvious, but what are the responsibilities of a director when you get into intimacy scenes like that? Um, I think you have an extreme responsibility not to cross over to boundaries. <laughs> you, guys, you guys have that history, right? With statements? Yeah, I didn't direct Reg, but oh, Reg, I, yeah, I was going to say, oh, yeah, Chuck directed, yeah, yeah. Chuck, Chuck directed that and did a very good job. And there you talk about intimacy. And, of course, he worked on that nudity uh, with you mm-hmm. alone. Um, you had with Lorraine. Yeah, with Lorraine. Lorraine had the one scene, but you had a lot. But I know he was very sensitive about that. Um, you've got to you got to tune in. You've got to check in to see what the actors are comfortable with first. You have to have frank conversations, but not in front of the rest of the right. company with the stage manager. You you got to make sure that the actor feels like they can. Um, you've got to have your stage manager to monitor you too. I think right. a lot of directors um, they just think that they're God basically, and mm-hmm. they will do whatever they want to do. And I count on my stage manager to. You know, tell me when to stop or to say, to check in with the act, to have the actors back. And, um, yeah, that's, I've known, it's almost always male directors who cross that line. Yeah, yeah. They just, um, they don't, either they're just basically insensitive or worst case scenario, they, they know what they're doing. Um, I would like to tell a story and I'm wondering if I can tell it without incriminating myself or anyone else. Yeah, um, try. We, 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 we walk that line well, a lot. <laughs> okay, I don't think that this will incriminate anyone in particular. The worst experience I've ever had in theater mm-hmm. was firing a director. Mm-hmm. And I fired the director because the director um, was asked an actress to do something that she was physically uncomfortable with and kept pushing her and kept pushing her to do it. And she said no, and she said no, and she said no. And I overheard this, and I told him she said no. And he told me to bug off. Mm -hmm. And I was the artistic director, and I fired him. And it was a horrible situation because, unfortunately, this particular director was a kind of a Svengali, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean he, he had all the other actors in that particular show enthralled. Yeah. And so when this thing happened, I couldn't expose the actress because that would make her fellow actors go, go against her. Mm-hmm. So um, it was all on me, and I had the lead actress quit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had a, uh, I had to cancel the show for a week to find another lead actress, and the other actors... Um, Never recovered. I mean, mm-hmm. half of the com- it almost split wow. the company apart wow. because they they did not. I could not tell them the real reason. I couldn't say right. the director was asking this actress to do something she was physically uncomfortable with. She told him no, and he um, kept pushing. And I said no, but I couldn't expose her to right. that. Sure. So it's. A, I feel there are some things that I will not let people cross, and it is almost always male directors, they just, uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, but, well, and it's, it's sort of the history, I think part of it is just the history of it, um, as I'm reading more and more about Hamlet and the various companies, you realize, yeah, you know, more than a century ago now, but the, the age of the actor-manager, um, <laughs> this is my world, I'm running this company, it's my vision, it works the way I want it to work, and you are under me. I think we're in a different era now, especially with laws, we're in a different era where there's more avenues of recourse to say, wait a minute, this is inappropriate, this is wrong. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about Happy Days, that show. Uh, One story I had, when Samuel Beckett directed the woman that he worked with for many years, 
that he um, he ruined her back for the rest of her life mm-hmm. because he required her to squat for two hours without moving, and so mm-hmm. we, and that's what he and she did it. Yeah. So it's it's like uh, you think about you hear stories about Stanley Kubrick and mm-hmm. uh, as as the film director and mm-hmm. how Shelley Duvall. I mean, I saw a interview with Shelley Duvall, and unfortunately, you know, she has mental issues. Uh-huh. A lot of people think that it goes back to The Shining, right? Oh. Where there were just so many takes of, if you remember The Shining, it's a horror movie. Right. Alfred Hitchcock, no, not Hitchcock, um, but, but um, Jack Nicholson and all of that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and Kubrick had, you know, them do takes over and over and Stephen over. Stephen King, isn't it? Stephen King. King. Yeah, King. Yeah, King. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, but Kubrick. But it's right. Kubrick, and it's, it's his adaptation. My understanding yeah, is it's very far it. from. And he's known for being, you know, very, listen, I want things done this way and that way. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is we, we talked about there's some actors who are actors for the wrong reason. You know, mm. They want to do their thing. Free therapy. And they, right, exactly. You know, uh, acting is therapeutic, but not therapy. You know, <laughs> but, um, but there's some directors, that's my point, who are in it for the wrong reason, too. Oh, yeah, there are. I mean, I, I still remember acting school. Having one very particular instance of a of a uh, a teacher pushing, uh, I guess it was a female student once again, in, into this sort of psycho babble, you know, psychodrama stuff, and he crossed that line, mm-hmm. you know, and we all knew it, and it's like there, it's okay to ask people to go into their internal lives and to draw on their, but. There is a boundary, and I feel very strongly about, you know, respecting that. Uh, But taking care of your actors, again, like I said, in Radica's situation, it's too bad that the stage manager didn't have her back. Right. Because... And they don't always know. I mean, that's uh, one of the things that we come back to again and again is I I love the equity situation just because there are guidelines and rules, and a stage manager in that situation is more likely to at least think about those rules and guidelines. They may not be any more sensitive. They may not be any more aware. But at least they know that there's a, there's sort of a professional courtesy, mm-hmm. you know, to how you run the business, how you run a rehearsal, what's appropriate, when do you break, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. I've, I've worked with stage managers who want to be sort of rigid about the rules. And then I've worked with other stage managers who they step up in that moment to say, Wow, do you guys need a break? And you can see that nobody else is thinking that, but they are watching and going, this is when somebody's tired. And someone who's been a stage manager for a while, and actually we're going to have, I talked to Jennifer Daly last week, and she's a fantastic, she stage managed you for a long time. And we're going to try to have her on the show, because I love to have a tech perspective. But I, I was a stage manager for a long time before I jumped back into acting. And... I don't stage manage anymore because I've just gotten too old and too cranky to deal with, you know, <laughs> bad bad directors who mm-hmm. want you to go and buy props and you know, I'll, right. I'll pay you back later and right. all of this stuff and, and dealing with their personalities. It was one of the hardest things as a stage manager. If everyone is on their P's and Q's, especially the director and the producer and, and what have you, then everything works just fine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the actors don't have to worry about anything else but just the lines and the story and all of that. But there have been times where there was one show I, I stage managed in New York mm-hmm. uh, where the producer says, well, hey, uh, I'm going to pay you on opening night. And then on opening night, it was like, well, I can't really do that right now. I'm going to pay you closing night. Right. There's almost a revolt. Right, right. You know, people just got really, really pissed off. I had to deal with one director, Bob Zick, actually, our good friend Bob Zick. Mm-hmm. The, pro, the show that we were, the company that we were in, 
uh, prior to EastEnders was a company called Bay Stage, and the last production we did was um, Water Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the director was not on page with the rest of the actors and act- asked the actors to do all sorts of crazy stuff, and had to sort of be a referee to sort of buffer right. attitudes. And it's, it's a very uncomfortable thing for a stage manager to be in. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I think those things are rare. Usually everyone is on their P's and Q's. Well, you, you mentioned equity, and, and although... But EastEnders worked with union actors because it was small enough that it could. And then, but with Douglas Morrison and where I am now at Town Hall, which we may be hopefully, you know, a few years from now, well, they, they, have before, right? they have before, but, but, but now we're back to not because mm-hmm. of money. Right. But with Douglas Morrison, what I started and what I'm continuing here is an as-if for stage managers, that they are supposed to run their rehearsals in, as if it's an equity. Mm-hmm. And it makes a big difference. I mean, and it's just you've got to follow some rules. And a lot of, a lot of quote-unquote, amateur actors um, need to be taken care of. Right. Maybe even more so because they don't know to stick up for themselves. Right. And they will let themselves be walked over. Well, yeah. maybe this is just being older in business, but, um, you know, that uh, that whole thing about the show must go on. I'm like, no, if my dad dies, That's right. yeah. I'm out of here. I'm not doing the show tonight. I'm going. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and you do have some directors who are, who feel, who, like I said, who are in business for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned equity. We've been talking about, what's the contract called, the BAT? Uh, the BAT, the Area uh, Production Policy. BAP. BAP. Yeah, B-A-P-P. Yeah. Have you worked, I mean, now that you're the artistic director of Town Hall, do you deal with that sort of stuff? Do you deal well, with they can't. We're too big. Yeah, they're too big they're too for that. Yeah, we yeah. can't do, we go, we go immediately into guest yeah. artist contract. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I want to start with Town Hall relatively soon, which we can do, is um, stage readings, because stage readings have right. good, lenient rules, and that way I can get equity people in the door, mm-hmm. uh, at least to get on our stage and start working right, there. Right, right, if you uh, get your audience used to seeing them. Right. I know a budding playwright who would love to have a stage reading done. There you <laughs> go. Anyway. You've got one Monday. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, well, I wanted to, uh, you know, when we talked about EastEnders, it's because that's how I, and it was statements, was how you and I actually connected. We talked about statements. Yeah. And I wasn't able to make a commitment to it at the time, but I was like, wait, where are the, what are they doing now? Because I've been paying attention to EastEnders from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I was happy to see that energy coming. And I have to say, I was a little surprised to see Chuck. I was like, Chuck is handing the reins over to somebody else. Chuck is giving somebody else that power. But once I started communicating with you, I got a sense. I was like, okay, there are reasons why he trusts her. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, originally we were co-artistic directors. Right. And then with his health changing, but also because it sort of naturally went into that way. I was, you know, I, think, I think this is that Chuck wanted to write. I wanted to step back and, mm-hmm. and serve as a sort of founder, but the kind of things that an AD does, he didn't really care as much about. Right. Um, and, and then, as I say, his health was such a, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta have a lot on the ball when you're an artistic director because you're expected to be in the public's eye a lot. Right. So, um, yeah, he did trust me a lot, and I owe him a huge amount. Um, and uh, Oh, but you really stepped up. I yeah, mean, and, yeah, it, yeah. and it put the company, it seemed to me that it put the company on a, just a more stable yeah. artistic footing as well as uh, personnel. I don't want to call it a business model, but it was an interesting model that EastEnders had, the, the entire repertoire, like the 100 years, like the whole time as a political theater. Right. And, even before my time, you know, I think 10 by 
eight by ten. Eight by ten. We did first. Our festivals were pretty darn remarkable. Um, <laughs> especially now, the more I the more I've done, the more I know that I don't imagine. I don't know how we did them. Right. I mean, the hundred and six years of comedy, we did ten plays. Wow. We eventually got down to the six. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the fact that and that's that kind of theater still excites me because um, I think it's amazing to make people have to make connections between different kinds of plays and right. different periods. The one year we did, um, the very first year with American Wax, uh, we had, because we do them chronologically, mm-hmm. well, the middle series was Eugene O'Neill's Huey, which most people don't know was written in the late 50s, mm-hmm. and um, Dutchman by uh, American Wax, right. yeah. which was right. in the mid-60s. Okay. The styles of those plays, those, this is the same evening. Mm-hmm. So, so, Dutchman, is that the subways? Yes, uh, yes, that's yes, the subway play. Uh, yeah, it was mind-blowing to go from Eugene O'Neill mm-hmm. to Mary Brock in the same evening, and that's what we love doing. I mean, mm-hmm. and uh, you were in the, the politicals, um, so we went from Bed Bug was yeah. the first one, yeah. all the way to actually... No, actually, Retreating World, Naomi Wallace, and that was a beautiful oh, play. Yeah. 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 Tarek Khan, where is he? He's back. He's back in the Bay Area. I saw his name somewhere. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 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 That was that was a it was a, one, it was a one-man show, basically about I think it was the Iraq War. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There's a wonderful scene where he uh, throws um, basically feathers out of uh, uh, pigeon feathers or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That final scene. So what else? Uh, can we, um, did you want to uh, talk about the town hall? Uh, what, what do you guys you should, I, Well, yeah, because that's the other thing is we watched you as you moved on. Yeah. Douglas Morrison was exciting. It was exciting it to was. see how this, because it's a community theater that I'd heard about for many, many years. Yeah. And then it was going through changes. And that was exciting. And then it was time for you to move on. And I was like, Where's, wait a minute, they're losing that vision, we're losing that voice. Yeah. I was happy that you landed a town hall. As actors, it was very sad because Douglas Morrison is a fantastic spe- I just don't know what's happening. That's a huge space. It well, is gorgeous. you know, it, it is an absolute gorgeous space. It's a mini Berkeley rep. I mean, that mm-hmm. modified thrust stage. Um, I think I did some pretty amazing things there and uh, really was boosted the level of the quality. But it is run by a Parks and Rec, right. and the Parks and Rec do not seem to be interested to be in the business of producing theater, right. and they don't seem to be interested in increasing the quality of the theater, particularly. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it w- is going to devolve into a place that maybe does one show a year of its own, but mostly rents it out. It's going to mm-hmm. be a rental house. Mm-hmm. And so it's clear they didn't really need an artistic director anymore. Right. Um, when I heard about Town Hall, and I actually hadn't, I mean, I had heard of Town Hall for years, but I'd actually not been out there, so it was interesting to go. It's, um, it, it couldn't be it's more different. for those who don't know. Yeah, it couldn't be a more different community than Douglas Morrison, which is in Hayward, a very well-off community. But it is in a 106-year-old building. It is an old barn. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting in itself. The theater's upstairs. Um, and uh, it has a very robust board and very it's fiscally responsible those things that you look for but i think one of the things that got me interested and wanted to apply was seeing that they done angels in america mm-hmm. now any smaller theater company that tries to and they did not just one part but both parts, both parts okay. and in fact when berkeley rep as you know is doing it um they wanted to advertise it as the first revival and someone said no you can't town hall just did you know just let they did both parts 
But um, so that was actually a big reason that I thought this is a place that is is willing to do a show like Angels in America. Um, and so when I came in, you know, uh, I was interested in sort of sussing out what what does the board want to do? Are they going to support some? Is it just going to be you know easy choices? And I made. You know, for example, they mentioned Neil Simon, and I said, well, I'm not going to be doing Neil Simon. Mm-hmm. I really don't like Neil Simon. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> um, and then when the managing director took me aside and said, oh, my God, thank goodness you said that. I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm thinking, okay, we're, we're okay. They have a very robust education program. Mm-hmm. Um, they teach everybody from, like, the little teeny weenies up till 16-year-olds, and they do full-fledged shows, mm-hmm. um, like right now. In the in the in the space of three weeks, they'll be doing Treasure Island, Spamalot, and Peter Pan, mm-hmm. all different age groups. Right. And, um, so that's very impressive. And also, you know, it's the artists of the future. These are the people who that come back to the program. And, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm new there, so I'm still sort of feeling my way, feeling my way, because I just started in December, um, and I have my first season that actually I. I only picked half of the season. I'm happy with the other half, but um, it had already been picked by the time that I came on board. And, um, but yeah, it's, but I'll tell you the smartest thing they did, the interim artistic director, they moved her and she is now the community engagement specialist. She's the marketing person. Mm -hmm. The smartest thing that a smaller to mid-sized theater company could do is have a strong marketing person. Poor EastEnders. That was that was the main thing. Many companies, yeah. And I was going to ask you the state of, because before we began recording, we talked about the state of theater and the state of theater companies. It's tough. I mean, uh, EastEnders, you know, I said I, the company, you have companies that have great talent, mm-hmm. but marketing is tough because right. you know, we're, we're artists. We, what do we know about, you know, bringing in money? and well, not just stuff. that. Getting the word out on a new entity, a new play, a new company, mm-hmm. people are like, People aren't sitting around going, gosh, I want to go see something I know nothing about. <laughs> yeah. And also, you have companies that have a lot of money, but they don't want to take any risks. Right. And unfortunately, oh, yeah. you know, there's not a lot of talent for, for some of them. Mm-hmm. But it's tough. And especially now, you have young kids who want to watch Twitter and Facebook, and right. you know, they're, they're just distracted. And even, you know, big media companies are, dis- are disrupted. I mentioned e- I mentioned ESPN. You know, they laid off a bunch of folks. Oh, right. Yeah. And uh, what do you think, Susan? The, the state of theater. I mean, you've been in the theater, especially here in the Bay Area, for many years. Do you? Do you? Is there? Um, do you see more companies failing? Do you see more companies? Um, um, Not, no, I don't think so, really. I think that there's still many, many of those little companies. The problem is that it's been since the '80s that we've had the mid-level theaters. Right. They disappeared. Remember the one act when that, that theater oh, used to be around yeah, a, long a long time ago. But that was one. Of, the middle level of the theater sort of dropped out because of economics. Mm-hmm. And um, you find some of the top end uh, less willing to take risks. Right. There's obvious reasons for that. Um, so there's still all kinds of little theaters going on, but that, that risk-taking middle ground, that's the tough one. And you got you got companies like Shotgun who are moving up, moving right. up, but they have to be careful. And they've been pretty good about it. They've had a few setbacks, but they've been pretty good. because. But Shotgun had a huge influx of cash. Right. It was a point that EastEnders and Shotgun were exactly the same size. Right. When Shotgun was at, at um, the Bowels, mm-hmm. they had a huge influx of cash. Right. And they, I think uh, we know that, and that helped. 
because it gave them a certain st- solidity, a certain stability, yeah. and they got the space. Right. Uh, you can't uh, underestimate what it is to have a physical location oh, where the audience yeah. can know where you are. And EastEnders got close to that with being one of the tenants at the Eureka. Um, but we never got the influx of cash. We never got the marketing angle down. We had never even... We got publicity. Publicity isn't the same thing as knowing how to market your shows, right? You get into the community. And if you aren't tapped into the community because you don't have a physical location, you've got a problem. Um, So, yeah, I I don't... I mean, I don't know. You're probably uh, thinking about this. The whole state of Bay Area Theater is going to go through a huge change because we are about to lose two of the main mainstays, artistic directors. You know, Tony's moving on. And Carrie. And Carrie's moving on mm-hmm. from NCT. So there's going to be a sea change in the Bay. I don't know what it, where it's going to look like, but it's going to change. The rep, I'm... I, I think ACT will go through. I think it will be a major change, and I think it needs to be a major change. Carrie had her strengths. It's time for something else. Um, with Tony, I think the organization has a, a stability. So I, I well, Susie Medak, the manager, is so solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, um, but it is going to change. I mean, I don't well, know what I wonder what their relationship is with the Aurora being practically next door. Yeah. Um, and the Aurora has just, you know, blossomed into this solid entity over there with a, with a very smart, you know, their their mission. I don't even know if that's what it is, but that there's a through line. There's a mm-hmm. consistency to what they do, and it's just gorgeous. Whereas the rep is more likely to go monsoon wedding and then, you know, just back and forth all over the place. Um, which is, And shows from out of town and that sort of thing. So... Uh, they, they've managed that balancing act really well, and I s- imagine that they will continue to. Um, when I think about new or where the state is, for me, it's starting to pay attention to all these little companies that are popping up because, you know, they're, they're sort of like weeds. They're going to pop up. Some of them are going to take root, and they're going to go, and some of them are going to send seeds out. Mm-hmm. So we'll be hearing about these people, but that actual company might might shrink and disappear. I think about um, Piano Fight. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a new concept. It's a new way of bringing in. It's like someone has a venue, right? Uh, a, a brick and mortar, you know, place, and they say, "Hey, we're going to bring in new talent." You know, mm-hmm. write some stuff, and it's a contest. I mean, yeah, Alan Coyne, uh, who I think Coyne, Coyle, Coyne, Coyne. Mm-hmm. Coyne. Uh, he wrote a piece, and uh, it's uh, on the piano fight. But apparently, they're competing. It's like the, the people are writing one-act plays, mm-hmm. and the audience gets to decide who wins. And I guess the winner mm-hmm. will win like, five thousand dollars. It's my well, it's it's another version of the cage match we did at um, mm-hmm. Douglas Morrison, yeah, yeah. which, which I am going to be revisiting cage match at Town Hall for sure uh-huh. because it was so much fun. And we had we had playwrights coming from all over the world to do these little tiny plays and mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of fun and audiences can engage with it. Yeah, I think for me, I like a lot of traditional theater mm-hmm. too. So I just personally want to see that maintained as well as all this, you know, New stuff. I love the new stuff as well. But there should be balance, yeah. There needs to be a balance. And um, actually, ACTs, a lot of the things they've been offering the last couple of years have been much more interesting to me. The strand or just generally? The strand as well, but in general, than some of the stuff at the rep, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. um, 
So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what companies sort of hold down the fort with stuff and, and succeed. And I'm afraid economics is going to have a huge effect. I mean, companies like Town Hall, they're lucky they're in a very good affluent community. And the community wants to see it survive. Um, so they have, a, they have a steady audience coming in. They have a steady audience. They have a steady wealthy audience. Oh, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I, it's hard, it's horrible to say that that's what is somewhat tied to, but why don't we have a good theater, big theater company in Oakland, California? You know EastEnders tried very hard, right, very yeah, hard. Right. Yeah, so did I. And so did you, and so did Theater First. Yeah, theater First, yeah. Theater First was, they were, boy, they were oh, Johnny Appleseed. They kept opening up new spaces yeah. only to have them taken away from that's them. Right. That's and right. And I'm hoping that the flight deck, you know. They, they the flight deck is probably going to, to go somewhere. I, you don't I don't keep them. No, I mean, I mean, I mean it, that it will continue. Oh, yeah. What I'm, what I'm cynical about is, I'm sure it's going to evolve because it started off as a consortium, and they still talk about their consortium. It's still mm-hmm. active as a consortium, but I really think at some point somebody's going to go. You know what? We're kind of taking the weight on this. We're making management happen, or we're dealing with infrastructure. Somehow, somebody's going to take a little more ownership, and I think it'll evolve, and I bet we'll see that. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see something like that within the next three years there. Mm-hmm. But that still means it's an incubator. That still means there's a lot of stuff growing I mean, up through. where is that solid downtown, uptown, whatever you want to call it, company in Oakland, and there is space, and as Oakland's changing, I hope that one emerges still. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, it's been kind of my dream. Ubuntu is doing a yeah, nice thing, and I don't know. Stuff. They're funny because they had not had a space, so now that they're locked into the space, some of the company members are not happy about that. And what they're talking about is next year trying to reopen up their summer programs to get back out into the community. Mm-hmm. But I, I hope they, there are people like me who are definitely saying, please hold on to this Rick space. Moore, this is a yeah, gorgeous space. People love coming up into it. Yeah. I did Death of a Salesman there, and people just raved about the space. They love the show, but... They loved coming into that space. I'm like, yeah, you, you need to hold on to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. So I'm looking online. Robert Estes had a question for you, Susan. Mm-hmm. Is she going to direct that Melissa James Gibson play? Because <laughs> if she isn't dot, dot, dot. Do you know what that means? Yeah. Yeah, which one? Which one? The uh, Rhymes of America, the one he did, or the uh, new one? Oh, um, I'm definitely going to do Melissa James Gibson. I don't know when. It's not in next season, but mm-hmm. she's one of my favorite playwrights. Yeah. He knows that. Um, yeah. Also, also, Carol Churchill. You've done a lot yeah. of Carol Churchill. I will do more. There is, um, there's two new pieces that she has out. Mm. The issue is they are both about death. Mm-hmm. So that's a little hard to pitch to right. your new company. It's like, right. I'd like to do two plays about death now. It's like a little tragedy. I mean, we were talking about, you know, there's so much, you know, a lot of this young kids <laughs> that we see. It's comedy, comedy, comedy. Let's yeah. laugh, let's laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, a little tragedy's fine. Uh, yeah, well, well, well I mean, I'm going to do more Brecht in my life. I know that. Mm-hmm. I know that. It means a lot mm-hmm. to, to me to do that. I understand. I think it's time for Brecht right now. I feel yeah. it. I feel there's something that, mm-hmm. that caused him to write the way he was writing that is happening now. Right. And I wish we could have done Fear and Misery last yeah. round. Oh, uh, well, I have, a little, I have a little idea about that. Uh, I'll talk to you <laughs> offline about it. Uh, uh, there you go. Yeah. But yeah, I, Melissa James Gibson, fantastic. No, this first, the first season, I, I, you know, I didn't want to frighten the people at Town Hall, so I haven't picked Brad or, mm-hmm. or Churchill. 
Christmas that you're going to be in, mm -hmm. it's not Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. It's not Christmas Carol. It's got, oh, it's, 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 yeah. it's got some stuff in it, and mm -hmm. it's about coming together, and it's about a time in this country was riven apart, and mm -hmm. um, I was drawn to it because it wasn't Christmas Carol. We have enough Christmas Carols. Oh, don't exactly. We're hitting the one-hour mark. Yeah, yeah. Shout outs. Um, shout outs. Well, I mean, you mentioned Robert Estes' um, tender poem. I mean, Tender Napalm. I keep calling it Tender Paul. Tender Napalm is going uh, right now at the Temescal Arts Center. I'm hoping to go next weekend. Um, I don't have a lot of other ones right now because I'm finishing up my program. The Eugene O'Neill thing will finish up on Sunday. It's the first time I've done it. Um, I was stepping in for Eric Reed, and so I actually got in touch with him recently to say, hey, you know, I, this program is going really well. I think you will enjoy it if they invite you back next year. I mentioned that to the woman in charge of the program. She said, well, we were going to invite you back. And I was like, that could happen. Either way, it's been gorgeous. It's been gorgeous. I mean, one thing that is part of the landscape here right now is all of these new works and these new short works. I have no idea what that's about besides, on some level, it's a little easier to manage. It's a little easier to produce. But what do you do with all that energy? I don't know, but I don't want to ignore it. And that made it easier to do a program like what I'm doing this summer. It's like I'm seeing this in Playground. I'm seeing this in Shots. I'm seeing a bunch of organizations doing these shorts. The writers are accepted, uh, excited about it. Uh, what's his name? Stuart Bozell seems to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, there's a lot of this sort of energy out there right now, and I don't know what it means, but that is what the landscape here is here right now. Yeah. And I would be remiss yeah. not mentioning your piece because I'm getting to read Richard Monday. Wright. Monday. So, <laughs> oh, Monday. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a table read. You know, it's not actually. And the reason I have right, to it's not a big public thing, yeah. Because the space that we're doing it is, it only seats 20 people. Mm -hmm. But basically, um, Play Cafe, uh, they have these annual table, I mean, annual monthly table reads. And they've selected my uh, table read, uh, table, uh, my play. Foreman, Foreman in Paris, mm -hmm. basically by Richard Wright, Chester Himes, Ollie Harrington, and um, and James Baldwin. Right. And uh, that will be on Monday. If if people really, really want to come, then let me know, and I'll make sure that there's a space for you. It's at the LSI Language Studies, the yeah, LSI Center, yeah. 2015 Center Street in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And it's only for one night. That's a, um, this the 24th of um, July. Also, I want to pimp out... Um, uh, Alan Coynes, um, he has a play that he's read, written for Short-Lived Six, and that is uh, Piano Fights, Short-Lived Six, Round Six. And um, they're doing this contest. This is the contest that we were talking about, and they are actually performing as we speak right now okay. through July 22nd. But it will be going through, basically, there are a bunch of one-act plays, and they do it every weekend, I think until October. It's sort of like... It's almost like, um, um, what do you, uh, Simon, I'm thinking about Simon Cowell, um, um, whatever. Oh, um, um, American Idol. It's like American Idol, but for playwrights. So the, uh, a play is eliminated each night. <laughs> Until they get to one. Um, they do the same plays, or they do different pieces? I think they do different pieces. Wow. And the winner gets $5,000, and yeah, the audience gets to decide who mm -hmm. wins, oh, cool. uh, who, gets, who gets to advance. Mm -hmm. So that 
that's what's going on. And um, I give a shout out to my season, season if I could yes, just please. say the say the names real fast. So we're opening actually in late se- September with an, a local playwright that is exciting for Town Hall, mm-hmm. Min Khan, mm-hmm. and it's an all Asian cast. So yeah. this is very exciting for Town Hall. It's um, the song of the Nightingale. It was oh. done a few years ago at Alterina, but he's completely revised it for Town Hall. Nice. And, uh, so that's like a pop musical, little Disney feel. Okay. Uh, song of the Nightingale. Then Christmas shows, you know, Civil War Christmas, mm-hmm. Paula Vogel. In March, we got an Alan Akeborn kind of dark comedy called Woman in Mind. Um, that's going to be interesting. And then the one I'm directing is Sense and Sensibility. It's Kate Hamill's ad- adaptation that was on Broadway. Um, so it's kind of a little irreverent, but it's, it's going to be fun. So Excellent. that's the season. Very, very cool. And with that, I think it's time to wrap it up. We've got to get a better sign-off. Sign-off, man. Yeah.